be with each other, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we thank you for being with us tonight. If you will, take your Bible and open to John, the 18th chapter. In just a moment, we're going to scan several verses out of John, the 18th chapter, and it will uh, help us to stay together in the study. If you have uh, your Bible, and, and we're looking together as we study an interesting character tonight. I understand that the young married couples uh, class had a wonderful retreat this weekend and that the preacher this morning was Tim Martin and he did a wonderful job and Jeff Fortner spoke last night and did a great job and I'm sure others led in various ways and we appreciate each one that took part in the leadership of that and we appreciate David and Melissa Burka and the much time they've invested in the last few years uh, in that class and in hosting them in events and it's just wonderful uh, to see an elder and his wife so involved in the lives of our younger couples and we appreciate them so much and all that they're doing in that area it warms my heart to be led in prayer by young men like Kurt uh, it's wonderful to see our young men and our young ladies so serious about serving God and we just want to continue uh, to continue to urge you young men and you young women to continue doing what God gives you the ability and the opportunity to do. You're not the church of tomorrow. You're the church of today, and we hope that you're uh, a part of the church of tomorrow along with the rest of us. You have a very active place in the Lord's church today. Pilate was in a position... Could he have known that he would make history that day? You see, various Roman emperors gave different men in Pilate's positions various amounts of authority. Most that were given his amount or his position were at least given authority of finances in that region. Occasionally, there would be men in his position that not only would they be over the finances, but they would also have con some concern with the military affairs, with the civil affairs, and sometimes even the judicial affairs. It seems to be that Caesar had given Pilate all of those things as he looked over Judea. And that's what brings us to the study tonight as we think about various characters that intermingled throughout the day of Christ's greatest suffering on this earth. And so as we think about Pilate, John does the best job of giving us a sketch of things that not only happened in the life of Jesus that day, but it seems to very well stay with the things that happened in the life of Pilate that day also. Of course, if we were to read Matthew and Luke, we would have even greater insight to some other details are given, but John expands more than any other, and Mark gives uh, some small insight along this area also. Tonight... As we look through, simply trying first to just learn more about the character, I hope you realize that that's what we're doing in these Sunday night lessons. It's taking some time to learn the Bible. What does the Bible say, for example, last week about Mary? What does the Bible this week say about Pilate? We don't have time to go through and develop every passage that speaks on Pilate. But one of the things that always stands out as interesting to me is to see the movement of Pilate. Now, if you were here a few years ago, uh, probably three years ago, and I may be wrong on that, could be even four years ago, there was a lesson that we studied in depth, the movement of Pilate in, uh, inside as he was dealing with Jesus and outside as he was dealing with the mob. As kind of an extended introduction tonight, I'd like for us 
to take some time to just scan through this movement. And the reason I want us to do that is not only to see in the Scriptures what was happening that day, but also to see how Pilate was dealing with it that day, and also seeing this movement back and forth is almost like a part of symbolism to show his indifference. It appears that Pilate struggled somewhat to do on this day. And what we find out, when the end of the day came, he was on the wrong side of a bad decision. I need to take, not only as I learn these things, but the rest of the lesson, we'll talk about what contributed to him being on the wrong side of this decision. And what is it that I can learn to make sure that I don't fall into the same situation of finding myself making poor decisions throughout life. So we're in John, the 18th chapter, and the Jews wanted to bring Jesus because by this time he's already gone through the Garden of Gethsemane. He's had that mockery of a trial in the middle of the night that was illegal. He'd had to, before the Sanhedrin council that morning, and when he declared that he was the Son of God, they cried out, blasphemy, that's worthy of a death penalty. We're going to go to Pilate because the Roman Empire would allow the Jews to handle many of the affairs themselves but not allow them to execute they were forced to go before Pilate in an effort to be able to execute Jesus. And that's where we pick up in John, the 18th chapter, and verse 28. He's being led before them. And notice what happens. They come, and then in verse 29, 29, Pilate then, notice this movement, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They said in 30, an evildoer. And he said in 31, well, you go ahead and judge him yourself if that's all the problem is, that he's done something evil. And then they declare no at the end of 31. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Ah, you can imagine that Pilate's eyes must have grown a little wider here because he realizes this isn't just any civil affair. These people have come today with a judicial affair that they want to end in an execution. And so they discuss this. But first, in 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium. So he goes inside. Now back up in verse 28. The reason the Jews would not go inside, they wanted to remain pure for the Passover. Isn't that ironic? They didn't want to miss any of the Passover events. They wanted to make sure that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was executed that week, but they didn't want to do anything that would defile them to come into the presence of Gentiles that they couldn't enjoy their Passover. And so they did not go inside, but this gave Pilate the opportunity to speak to Jesus in private. We're going to see three times where he moves Jesus inside. This is the longest discourse that he has with him. He asked him in 33, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? So number one, they talked about whether or not Jesus was the king. Jesus didn't answer him directly in the sense there, but now he's going to because he is going to tell him about his kingdom. And if one has a kingdom, he must be a king. And so in 26, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. And so Pilate therefore says to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. 
For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into this world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again. You see the movement? Now, here, John doesn't record it, but the others record that this is actually the time that he sent Jesus over to stand before Herod. You see, Pilate was doing anything that he could do to get this man off his hands. First, he said to the Jews, you just take him back and you handle it. Second, he says, let me send him over to Herod. He's from his jurisdiction. He looks over Galilee. Let him decide what to do this man. But then finally, we see here that Herod sends him back. And what's his remarks here? It's interesting that the remarks are about, are you a king? He learns about the kingdom. And then finally, he's contemplating. What is truth? We'll look at that a little bit more in this lesson. Let's see now as he moves back out. As they make the move out in verse 38 to stand before the Jews again, notice the statement as he says, I find no fault with this man. And then... He reminds them of a custom that they have. We have a custom to release someone to you at the Passover week. How about Barabbas or Jesus? Surely at this point, Pilate thought that they would ask for uh, Jesus to be released because Barabbas was known to be a criminal. But notice what happens. They say in 40, we want Barabbas released. Now... This put Pilate in a situation where he did something that was the unthinkable. He scourged Jesus in 19th chapter, verse 1. The soldiers went ahead and twisted a crown of thorns, put on his head, and also put on him the purple robe. Then they began to mock him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Now Pilate takes him out before the crowd again. First time he brings him in is to question him. The second time he brings him in discouraging both times he's not found anything wrong one of the worst punishments that could be inflicted upon a person short of execution would be that of scourging they scourge the man and then to make mockery out of him of giving him a crown of thorns a robe to wear he brings him back out in verse 4 to present him and he says you can imagine this mockery here Behold, I'm bringing him to you, that you, but then he says, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Have you ever heard people speak out of both sides of their mouth? One of the worst punishments that someone that had authority could render upon another is scourging. And he says, here he is. Look at this, Jews. Look at this. I've scourged him. I find no fault in him. What a coward. What a coward. Trying to please everyone. But now at this point, we read in verse 5, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. But yet... They were not content with that because in verse 6 they said, Crucify him. And again, at the end of verse 6, he says, For I find no fault in him. 
And so this time he brings Jesus back in because while he was out there and he's saying, I have no fault with him, their response is he made himself to be the Son of God. So this sends fear through his veins. And so when he comes back in, he demands of him again, where are you from in verse 9? And Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate begins somewhat of a threat to say, you're not speaking to me? Do you not know what I have, that I have the power to crucify you or the power to release you? And Jesus answered him and said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. And so then Pilate, from that moment in verse 12, sought to release him. But the Jews said that if he did that, he would, be, he would not be a friend of Caesar. And so from that time on, he turned him over to be crucified. You see the movements back and forth? What would cause a leader to be so indifferent? He stands before the crowd and he wants to please them. He goes behind the scenes and, and he investigates and says, I can't find anything wrong. He even goes back before the crowd and says, I can't find anything wrong. Well, let me scourge him. Well, that's not enough. Okay, you go ahead and crucify him. I believe there are three things that day that he made that contributed to the failure of Pilate that day. Number one, Pilate was willing to violate his conscience. Friends, any time you and I are willing to violate our conscience, we're on the path to making some very horrible decisions in our life. If you want to see it again, notice in John the 18th chapter at the end of verse 38, he said, I find no fault in him at all. Notice again in the 19th chapter in verse 4, he says, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Notice at the end of verse 6, when they're yelling out crucify him, he says, for I find no fault in him. And notice in verse 12 of the 19th chapter, when he says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate made it very clear four times, I do not find any fault in this man. I do not think that this man deserves to be crucified. Why would he ever do it? Well, number one tonight, he did it because he violated his own conscience. The conscience is the inner sense that God gives us to recognize when we are doing wrong and when we are to feel guilt for it. And it's a horrible thing when we continually violate our conscience because eventually our conscience can, can go to the point that we don't even feel anymore. If you want to back up in your scriptures to Matthew, the 27th chapter, I want to read to you verse 24. Matthew 27 and 24. Notice what Pilate did in an effort to relieve his guilty conscience. Matthew, the 27th chapter, and verse 24, it says, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult would rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Now, it was from there that he took and scourged Jesus. And then it was even after that that he took and allowed Jesus to be crucified. Pilate, why did you go through this silly act of standing before a crowd and washing your hands and declaring you're innocent and then do horrible acts right after that? Would you agree with the fact that he was just trying to ease his conscience? He was going against his conscience that day, and he was struggling with that. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to do wrong today, but I want to do something to make myself feel better. If I'm going to scourge this man, I'm at least going to let the crowd know I don't feel good about it. 
If I'm going to turn him over to be crucified, I'm at least going to let the crowd know that I don't feel good about it. How many times have you said to someone, I know I shouldn't be saying this, but that's washing your hands, isn't it? I'm about to sin, but I'm going to let you know that because for some reason it just makes me feel better if I recognize the fact that I'm about to sin. Well, I know really we shouldn't deal with the expense account in this way, but, but you and I both know it, and so it'll be okay. Does saying before an individual or before a crowd that what you're about to do is wrong, but yet then turning around and going ahead and doing it, does that make it right? We need to think long and hard before we violate our conscience. Because when we go over to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, we see that the conscience is a very delicate part of our being. He warned these individuals not only against sin, but he warned them what could happen if they allow the sin to continue in their lives. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Notice what he says about the conscience in verse 2. 1 Timothy 4 and 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now see, that's problems right there. So we already have problems brewing in this chapter. Some are going to leave the faith of God, giving heed to deceiving spirits. They're going to fall in deceit. And doctrines of demons, they're going to obey false doctrines. Speaking lies, that's bad. In hypocrisy, that's also bad. What's all of these? When we start doing a multitude of bad things, what does it do to us? Here's what he says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he continues with other things, forbidding uh, to marry and abstaining from foods and etc. But notice how he, he notes how it's this wrong thing, this wrong thing, this wrong thing, this wrong thing. And finally, what's the result? Conscience is seared. We all, perhaps at least in, in, on TV or in magazines, at least have seen an animal being branded. And we know that when that hot iron is placed on the hide, that not only does it cause a calloused part of the hide so that there's no feeling there, but it stops the future growth in, in the hide there. There's not going to be hair there. There's not going to be fur there. What's the point when he says, you continue to make the wrong decisions and you violate your conscience? Before long, your conscience is going to say, so? It doesn't bother me. And then we'll get to the point where we'll actually defend it and believe it as we defend it. Well, what should we do? Turn over a few more pages in your Bible to 1 Peter, the third chapter. Instead of defiling it, what we ought to do is make sure that our conscience is headed toward the right direction. Oftentimes we read this verse as we study about baptism, but notice it as we study it about the conscience here. 1 Peter, the third chapter, and verse 21, this is what Peter says. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. And then parentheses, he says, not the removing of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is baptism? Baptism is something that if someone is lost in sin and they study the Scriptures, they will eventually come to the conclusion through their study, I feel guilty because I know that I am not fulfilling the will of God. I know that I'm still guilty of sin. I know that I'm separated from God. I know that I'm not uh, submitting myself to all of the things God asked me to do. Why would anyone be baptized into Christ? Well, we immediately say, well, to be saved. 
But isn't it interesting what Peter says? Another reason you'd be baptized into into Christ is because it's placing your conscience toward the right direction. Do you realize that when someone has submitted to the will of God in everything about baptism, when they come out of those waters, they can feel good about themselves. Their conscience can honestly say, I'm headed in the right direction. I've made the right decision today. What about when we don't make that decision? We should have that guilty feeling, that nagging. What about if we don't make that decision for a long enough period of time? The conscience may become seared. So number one, Pilate, how did you end up on the wrong side of such an important decision? Number one, he violated his own conscience. He was the one that said over and over, I don't find any reason to do this. I find no fault with this man. But now let's see another thing. Go to Matthew, the 27th chapter. You women, get ready to elbow your husband. You're going to love this one. Matthew, the 27th chapter, verse 19. Matthew 27 and 19. The he here is Pilate, and it says, While Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Think how different Pilate's day would have been if he would have just listened to his wife. I know many of you wives are already thinking about that time just last month. You'll say, wow, how different our day would have been if he would have just listened to me. You know, there's Bible principles to back up the fact that if a godly man marries a godly woman, the wisdom in his life to listen when she speaks with godly advice. Turn with me to Proverbs, the 31st chapter. When we read about the virtuous woman, this is so important that alluding to principles like this is the very first thing that Solomon writes about when he speaks about the virtuous or the godly woman that he wanted his son to find and to marry. What's the benefit of a godly wife? He says in verse 10, Proverbs the 31st chapter, and this is the first verse talking about the virtuous wife. He says, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. Now notice this. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. I'm not suggesting to you that Pilate was a godly man, and I'm not suggesting to you that Pilate's wife was a godly woman. But let's just use that as an illustration of what we are studying here from the Scriptures. What if a godly man was in a situation like Pilate and a godly wife says, Honey, don't you recognize that that man's just? She didn't just say, I have a feeling about him. She identified him. Honey, he is a just man. Don't deal with him unjustly. He's just. What did the proverb writer say? The heart of the husband safely trust her. Let's read the next verse. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. When we read back in verse 11, the trust helped him have gains in life. When we look in verse 12, it helps him to have righteousness in his life. I heard a man 
It was either right before we married or right after we married. And I heard a man teach a lesson on this topic. And I remember thinking, I didn't know that any principles like that were in the Scriptures. I've never heard that in my life. And then I remember thinking, if it's in the Bible, I ought to try it. I can think of the times that I've taken Tracy by somewhere and said, hey, I'm thinking about investing in this. What does it look like to you? She said, I don't have a good feeling about this at all. Drive on. How many times have husbands that have godly wives had the wife come up and say, you know, when you said this the other day, it came across the wrong way completely. What? Yeah. It came across the wrong way real bad. You probably didn't realize it, but this is what it sounded like you were saying. Think how different our lives will be if we have a godly spouse. Number one, we use our conscience internal. And number two, we have a spouse that also can help us. I don't know how godly she was, but Pilate's wife gave great advice that day. He didn't listen to it. There was a third thing that Pilate ignored that day, and it was the most important of all. When we look in the story that we've already read in John, the 18th chapter, one of my favorite lines in all of that is back in verse 38. Wherever, whenever Pilate says, what is truth? Now think about that for just a moment. Who's standing in front of him? Who's he talking to? John 1 and 14, John reveals to us that when Jesus came incarnated, God on earth in the flesh, that he was full of grace and truth. And John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment of truth. And when he speaks, his words are truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Turn back to John the 8th chapter. And we'll close with these remarks. John the 8th chapter. Notice what he says here in verse 32, how different Pilate's life would have been if he would have known the source of truth. I suppose Pilate was probably honestly confused on this. But isn't it a shame that truth embodied was standing before him and he didn't even know if there was such a thing as truth. John 8 and 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Pilate would have just known Jesus. If he would have just known the truth and submitted his life, Things could have been so different. I understand that all this was the bigger part of God's scheme. But just looking at the decisions that Pilate made that day. Now let's compare this to the way this same word is used in this same chapter. Let's go a little deeper in John the 8th chapter and let's read verse 44. 
He says to these individuals that didn't know who and or respect who Jesus was, this is what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. There's no truth in the ways of Satan. All of the truth is in Jesus. Pilate was standing there that day with Jesus in front of him and made decisions against him. Friends, today Jesus is is alive. He is well. The tomb is empty. He is resurrected. He is still truth, and his word is still truth. And even though we can't physically touch him today and we can't put our fingers in pierced hands, he is alive, and we are either saying yes to truth or like Pilate, we are saying, I don't buy into you. I don't submit to you. I don't believe it. And in that sense, we all stand like Pilate every day. What do I do with truth? I want to beg you this afternoon, this evening, don't continue to violate your conscience. Guilt is a good thing. And if you've been standing through invitation songs and you've been feeling guilty and you just haven't done anything about it, it's good that you're still feeling guilty because if you don't do anything about it before long, you'll callous that heart. That conscience won't fill it any longer. And that's not a good thing. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, do what you know is right. Do what you know Jesus would expect of you. And let's make sure that when the day is done that we've ended up on the correct side of our decisions, the side of truth. If you need to be baptized into Christ or repent and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.